man. Sweet hat. What's going on? Not much. Thank you. Yeah, this mm. is part of my collection of worn out Patagonia hats. Now that I live in Denver, my, uh, I wouldn't call it a resentment, more like my eye roll towards all things Patagonia has elevated <laughs> like another four or five orders of magnitude from what it was before. And it really happened. I've always been, I love Timberlands. You know, I grew up in Philly. And so when it's freezing out, you wear Tim's. It's just what you do. And my wife isn't nearly as like fucking cool as I am. And so she doesn't like Timberlands. <laughs> so anytime that there's like cold weather material, she always grabs Patagonia. And so she bought me a Patagonia beanie and I'm wearing it all the time because it's it's it was zero degrees this morning when I woke up. It's a little warmer now. It's like 20 degrees. And every time I put on this goddamn Patagonia hat, I was like, oh, like I am everything. <laughs> I am everything that I told myself I would be. <laughs> and warm, right? Am I guessing warm is the other thing, the other end it's of that sentence? Warm, yeah, but I'd rather be cold. I'd rather be cold and look cool. Yeah. yeah, no, I, okay, I am of two minds. I used to sell outdoor gear and we called Patagonia Patagucci back then. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's expensive. But I, what do I like about it? I like the brand. I actually tried to work for Patagonia once and cool. got an interview running their location in Austin. Um, but then they, they, they threw out my application because I changed my mind, like halfway through the interview process. I was like, actually, I found this other role that I think would be better for me. And I guess they're, I don't know the way that they structure, like the interview paths is pretty strict. <laughs> so they lost my info on purpose, but I always liked, uh, I liked the company. I liked their values. Yeah. They cool. seem like they like legit care about that, but here's my favorite thing. If you look up their founder, Yvonne Chouinard on Wikipedia, the fact he's that he's a, a billionaire, well, the fact that he's a billionaire is the third thing in his bio. Yeah. And I was like, that's cool. When yeah. when they're like, oh, he did this and that, and he's a billionaire, it's like, yeah. you got a cool life. I like have that you ever idea. have you ever read his book? If I feel like you would, I here's the thing, Tim. I really am surprised to hear you say this because if you ever read his book, I feel like you'd be like. Um, who are those people who come knocking on your door to tell you about religion? What are those people called? Um, Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, you'd be like the Jehovah's Witness of let my people go surfing. <laughs> and I just feel like this would be your new religion. If you, have, you, have you read it or no? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, dude, he's a cool guy. He like um, basically started Patagonia as like an accident. He was a just a, a bum of a rock climber and he would make his own rock climbing gear and like bought... A hammer and anvil and a forge, and they would roll around in a van climbing these big walls all over the place. And people were just asking to make climbing gear. So they started making it um, and eventually built a company off of it. But the rule was always like work stops for surf breaks. And he says he's got, I think it's like uh, he's got some funny term for like his PhD, which is like. Oh no, his uh, MBA management by absence. Cause he like mm -hmm. basically ran the company without ever actually being there living out of a van the last three decades or whatever. Super interesting dude, total hippie, very much up your alley. So that's cool. <laughs> I yeah. feel like, uh, I feel like you guys are kindred spirits. Anyways. Um, it's good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. Let's kick this off. What do we got? Well, speaking of interesting founders and how they grew, I want to call out two creators that I stumbled across this week. Um, the first one is a guy called, uh, what's his name here? Jared Herman. And he writes a newsletter called How They Grow. Do you know this guy? No, Aaron Herman. No, Jer Jared, J-A-R-Y-D cool. Herman. And his newsletter is called How They Grow. Dude, you're going to go nuts for this. Check this out. So what he does, it's very similar. Oh, you mind giving me screen share real quick? No. It's similar no. to that other creator that we called out a few weeks ago, Chanel. Yeah. Um, she reverse engineers the growth of like the most famous creators. Jared does something similar, but for brands that everybody's talking about. So 
And he does these super in-depth de in deep dives on how the brands grow. So this is all about like Canva's growth strategy. I'm just going to do a quick scroll of this so you can see just how detailed it is. He pulls things from like their original pitch decks, charts their course up through like, you know, the uh, early adoption stages, their big, scary uh, chasm, all this stuff. Super, 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 super in-depth uh, charting of how they grow. Yeah, man. And look at this. He's done all kinds of cool brands. He did Lego, Notion, OpenAI, like just all this cool stuff. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this before on the show. I love this method for like establishing a um, reputation as yeah. any kind of content creator, just like super in-depth breakdowns of how other people have come before you. I think it's always going to work. And I love to see when people do like a really good job of it. I mean, this, I, I know how much research this takes to, to really be able to plot these sorts of um, uh, like progressions. And uh, I just think he's absolutely killing it's gotta it. It's got to be like 8,000 words. Yeah. This is almost like the wait, but why of reverse engineering yeah. growth. Um, I love so, it. Can't wait to sign up. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. So he's one. Um, I got one other creator who's kind of interesting that I wanted to call out too. This is somebody else that I think you might really like because you're also, in addition to being a lover of Patagonia, a lover of science. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I do love yeah. science. Yeah, that one's actually true. Okay, so there's um a writer named, and I just came across her this week. Her name's Anna Sophia. Last name is. Lesiv, L-E-S-I-V. And she's a writer for a uh, venture fund called Contrary. Um, but the reason I want to call her out is because every once in a while you come across somebody who can like take super complicated topics and break them down in a way that's not only easy to understand, but also just really engaging and simple. Like I think Bill Bryson is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. Anna Sophia, uh, her Twitter handle is Anna Sophia Lesiv, all one word, yeah. um, does this incredibly well. So I stumbled across her work because she wrote a, a, a basically a deep dive on the industry of fusion energy and like some of the advancements that are being made there. And I'm like most people, which is like, I feel like I know what fusion is, but I couldn't, I could, I don't really know what fusion is. Like I know what it is, but I couldn't tell you what it is, that kind of thing. And it's uh, an intimidating topic to try to learn. Her piece was phenomenal. By the time I, do I was done reading it, like I felt like I not only understood really like the high level science behind it, but also the evolution of like how we came to understand it and the industry. So I'm actually writing something about this right now for trends is largely based on her ability to like uh, explain this oh. incredibly con uh, complex topic. So love when I stumble on somebody who could do like the science writing in a way that's really engaging and just wanted to call her out. Anna Sophia, definitely worth a, a look. If, if anybody out there listening is like enjoys science or technology on the side. Yeah, we'll have to link all of these things in the show notes. So Anna Sophia, it looks like she writes for Contrary. That looks like the... Yep, the, that's the VC fund. That she yeah, that's for. the VC fund. And then she's got a blog, annasophia.xyz, yep. which um, is very cool. Yeah. Uh, awesome. I, like I love it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't um, think about blogs those. are in, man. Blogs are still so so powerful. I, like, what what has had more staying power, other than email? That just doesn't count. What what has had more staying power than a blog? The written word, man. That's it. Yeah. Do you think? Okay, so I don't think it'll ever go away. I I, I think a lot about like the uh, Lindy Law when it comes to stuff like this. Everybody always yeah. says written word is done and like. Even now with short form video, dude, I could care less about short form video. I think there are some interesting opportunities in that space. If that's like a format that you really love to pursue, but we're seeing this now too, man. I've, I've seen like two or three different people come out over the last few weeks and say, yeah, TikTok is great for views, but 
it's trash for subscribers. Yeah, trash. Trash. I've gotten hardly any subscribers. And I've I made a commitment to do at least six months of short form video in about month two right now. I can't I can't really prove that it's generated much of anything that wouldn't have been generated like accidentally on its own without doing all the work, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think, I think the reason, and this is another reason about AI that I, I, I'm not too worried about AI because people forget that the ability to write is also the ability to think. And it's not just content, it's competence. And the writers always have the most high level competence because you have no other choice. If you're going to write something good, it means you have to actually understand it. And when I say understand it, I don't mean like you were able to Google stuff and chat GPT stuff and put stuff together in a way where it's like, hey, look at all this information. I mean, like actually understand it to the point where if somebody says like, hey, what is nuclear fusion? You could tell them in three to four sentences, and then you could tell them about how, basically how we created fusion, what it does, and how all these tiny, tiny little like mirrors and reflections created enough force and pressure to fuse elements together that created more energy on the outside, right? You can't learn that stuff just by asking what is nuclear fusion into some chatbot? Like when you write it, you really understand it. And I just think that there's still something to be said about being smart. You know what I mean? Like there's something to be said about having a brain that works well. And for that reason, I'm still extremely, extremely optimistic about just writing and high level writing and blogs, mm. websites. Yeah, there's so many things to unpack there. I the I remember in college, we were I was in a philosophy class having a discussion about artificial intelligence. And you have to like differentiate because there is this thing in technology that we now call artificial intelligence. That's one thing. But yeah. then there's also a philosophical concept of artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. And the way that, that was explained to me was like, Imagine you come to a door and the door is closed and locked and you don't know what's on the other side of it. And you can write like a question on a piece of paper and slide it under the door. And it comes back out with the answer on it. Your perception is that like the whatever's on the other side of that door knows the answer to that thing and like understands that topic. But it's just as possible that whatever's on the other side of the door has like a strict set of instructions so that like Whenever yeah. this symbol comes under the door, you reply with this symbol and that's it. Yeah. And that was kind of explained to me as the concept, like what artificial intelligence, at least in a philosophical way, really is. It's not, it, 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 it has the appearance of understanding, but really it's just uh, almost like rubber stamping an answer based on what the input was. Yeah. And I don't know how much that transfers over to actual, like what we actually call AI um, on like the language uh, what do they call that, like a language model side? Yeah. But um, I do think it's important to keep in mind. Language, yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind this idea that, like, you can be fooled into thinking something understands what it's talking about because it, uh, it the the answers appear as though like they're coming from a place of understanding, but it could just as easily be this philosophical artificial intelligence where. Input equals output, and that's it. Like there is no understanding there, and that is um, it's an important thing for people to remember, especially as more and more information comes comes out. Yeah. It's generated by AI. Did you see that thing about the teacher who like in, who like encourages his students to use AI in their in a college? Um, no, but I'm not surprised. It's just a tool. That's exactly what he says. He says it's a tool that. Uh, you should use and then he like lays out some pretty good ground rules for how to use it which i thought was smart mm -hmm. one of them is don't trust what it says and, it's, and it, i thought this was really cool he said um basically you shouldn't trust any of the facts or statistics that it gives you unless you go out and then verify them and he said uh and you're going to be responsible for any misstated statistics so it doesn't matter if the ai gave it to you like it's your job to make sure 
yeah. that data that you share is um, is accurate. And then the other thing you said was like, AI is just a tool, but it's a tool that you have to uh, like acknowledge that you used. And so you need to include in any paper that is generated partially using AI, you need to tell me how you used it in order to get the outcome that you got. Otherwise, yeah. like you're breaking our our integrity policy. I just thought that was so smart to set people up with those expectations now, because that really is how AI should be integrated, I think, into like the writing landscape. Yeah, that's cool. I always like Neil, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's, I'm not going to get this quote totally, but something like intelligence is knowing when other people are full of shit or not. And I like that. It's a good meter as to like, what am I striving for? I'm striving for the ability to walk into a conversation and know if I'm being played, right? If I'm, if someone's trying to get one over on me, just to understand enough to understand, basically. Um, that's great. And that's actually kind of a perfect transition. You always nail these transitions so well. And I always think to myself, like, did he do that on purpose? Or did he wait for like the perfect opportunity to move on to the next, uh, the, the next segment? And so we had two great examples of blogs one of them was a substack the other one was probably a wordpress site but regardless a blog nonetheless and and it's i've been thinking a lot this week about the role of content and how it pertains to sales and you're gonna have to let me tee this one up a little bit because i don't have an answer or even necessarily a point of view i've just been observing something and it's it's making me change a bit of my perspective on it. So here goes. Okay. We are really at a point with Stadzi where we're ready to expand as a media company. And the industry of behavioral health has so little like written resources that it's almost wide open. There's there's nobody creating high level content other than, you remember that website I showed you, bhbusiness.com, um, where I was like, oh wow, someone's really doing this. That's the only one. And it's, it's inspired me a little bit because I always thought no one's really gonna be interested in this stuff, right? Everybody's only interested in like social media and like attention and views and all that. Who's really gonna be interested in a, a blog, a media brand based on behavioral health care. Well, people are interested. It's a multi-multi-billion dollar industry that crosses a whole bunch of different verticals and sectors. And so we were thinking about just turning the blog of Stasi into some kind of media company, right? But then I was looking around at examples and I found this pattern over and over and over and over again that is making me rethink my view on what it means to do content marketing. And here's where it started. Um, Neil Patel, everybody knows Neil Patel and some people don't like him. I don't know why that happens. I think he's really, really brilliant, especially just on his level to execute on like really high level and meticulous work. Neil Patel's blog is neilpatel.com one of the most famous marketing blogs in the world. So much traffic, like millions and millions of hits a month. And I always knew that he had an agency, but it wasn't until recently that I discovered that his company isn't actually located on neilpatel.com. His company is npdigital.com. That's his agency. And he hardly markets his agency as a standalone brand. It's just sort of like a housing mechanism. And the content on npdigital.com is much more, I'd almost call it like a collection of sales pages. You know, it's just much more about the benefits of what the company does. But neilpatel.com is like the attention generator, right? Is the media machine that points traffic to npdigital.com. Okay, so I see that. And then I realized accidentally that we did the same thing with Copyblogger. And it was only because of a, a, a partnership. Digital Commerce is the content marketing agency associated with Copyblogger. And there's different ownership structures, you know? So if this was me doing it, 
two years ago when we started it, I probably would have just called it like copy blogger media and highlighted the services directly on the copy blogger site, right? But it's been very, very effective to create the content on copy blogger within the content, have high level, I shouldn't say high level, have like really specific calls to action that funnel traffic to the digital commerce site. And the digital commerce is, is mechanism to explain to people the services of working with us, right? And so it's got me thinking a lot. So it's got me thinking a lot with Stasi, where if there's an agency, if there's a company, is it better to create a, um, a an adjacent media brand that pumps out content and creates an email list and creates a newsletter and just creates a communication mechanism that doesn't get in the way of the actual business itself. Because on the actual business itself, you're a little bit limited to the stuff that you can write about because if it doesn't serve the purpose of the company, then you're kind of just screwing up the SEO and like you're dunking it all up, you know what I mean? Whereas if you have like a separate media company, you can just get attention however you want and get emails and then email those people. And the people that aren't into it are going to unsubscribe. And it's just, it's, it's much more of like a high velocity, high volume, go, 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 go um, type strategy. And yeah. And so now like we're seriously contemplating creating basically like a hustle for behavioral healthcare, like a media company for behavioral healthcare, and then using that traffic to point to the Stasi website, which is going to be like the housing mechanism for our services. And that's it. I'm teeing it up for you here. I'm, I'm really, really thinking about this as to which way makes more sense. I'm sure there's examples of like everything just being on one website and that working really well. Obviously, I just went through a couple of examples of separating the two. And I want to know what you think. That's an interesting question. I, off the top of my head, I think it makes sense. When we fit it into the model that we talk about here a lot, which is like yeah. free front end, back end. <clears throat> For anybody who might be new to the show and isn't totally familiar with that, the way media companies often work is you have three ways to monetize. You have a free publication, which monetize via, via ads and affiliate deals. Then you have a front-end product, which is a low-cost subscription, and then a high-end product, or sorry, a back-end product, which is a high-cost or high-ticket uh, product. Within that framework, agencies are the back-end. And so I, I don't see any problem with building out back-end products that have a different brand from whatever the free publication is, or the reverse. Like if you started with the back-end, the agency, and you want to yeah. uh, spin up like new front end sources or new sources of traffic. I think it's a great way to do it. Um, I agree with your point too, that like sometimes you can do more under a different brand than you could do uh, under your agency's brand. And also it's just easier sometimes for a media first company to build that kind of relationship with the audience that's needed to really get out there and publish hard hitting pieces that get a lot of views right sometimes that's hard for an agency to do because people kind of land on the site and they're not they don't really understand i don't know maybe it's that they don't understand or they just don't connect with an agency the same way mm. um so like i'm thinking through it i'm thinking like are there any agencies <clears throat> that you feel strongly connected to like neil patel's site that's him you're talking to neil and maybe yeah. that's why it works so well is that yeah he's these uh, personable brands build the connection and then funnel that off to the agency. The same thing with the newsette. I mean, their agency has a completely different name than the newsette. Oh my gosh, that's right. That's another example. Well, what yeah. was she doing? TikTok marketing, yeah. right? TikTok influencer marketing or something? Yeah. And so for people who didn't hear that episode, we did a more detailed breakdown of it. But, but generally speaking, or like broadly speaking, um, there's a newsletter called the newsette that does sort of like lifestyle newsletter for business women 
and uh, they're incredibly successful. They do like $20 million in revenue on the newsletter alone, but then they have a TikTok agency on the back end. And what was it called? It was like, is some kind of like yeah. Oak. Yeah. Live Oak or something like that. Yeah, it was some, it's, that been it's, it. some, it's something completely different from the Newsette name. And in fact, you can't even find the website for the agency. It's not. Yeah, like that's right. Somebody sent us a DM on Twitter saying like, this is the company and they sent us, and even the website itself was basically just a splash page that looked yeah. like it was built on Squarespace, you know, like there's yeah. nothing to it. And a lot of that is because the way that they do it is they have advertisers in the free newsletter that become agency clients on the back end. And so they don't need like a huge presence for the agency because all the clients come in the door through the through the free newsletter. Yeah, this there's two things that you said, which I'm glad that you recognized <laughs> this model, the media model. Um, I have a real opportunity to do that. Because the SaaS world for behavioral healthcare, there's companies for EMRs. Uh, those are basically managing patients. There's specific kind of CRMs that are being created because uh, the information that you store, like a, a, a sales force, for instance, you would call them clients or customers, but with healthcare, they're patients and you have to store very, very particular like records in order to get paid because it's not like a cash pay type thing. Like you're always working with insurance companies. And so the CRMs are different. Um, there, there's an entire slew of other companies that would absolutely be willing to advertise on a newsletter if I chose to do so. But there's also an opportunity for front end. We'll call them products, really their services, but I would position them as products. Because one of the things that's happening to us is, <laughs> and you're going to love this too, after reading $100 million offers, the offer that I put together has, in a weird way, started becoming its own product. Because what I did is I fused the research and the auditing process with the proposal. And so there's been two or three times, three times huh. where I would send the proposal and people said to me like, oh my God, it was 15 pages long. Like, I can't believe you gave us all this information. And there's, there was one time in particular where I still got undercut on the price, which, which is fine. I'm not butthurt about it. I couldn't have taken it at the price that they wanted to, but I think they still probably would have paid six grand for that work because it's it's very specific knowledge-based work like there's not a lot of people that would be able to do that you know basically just me and like a couple other people and so i think there's an opportunity to have these like front-end products mm -hmm. their services but I'll, I'll i would position them as products and then funnel that into like a full-on eight to ten to twelve thousand dollar a month uh client with like an actual contract because there's there's the there's the roadmap which is basically like Here's what you do. If you want to do digital marketing, but you don't want to hire me, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Here it is. And just do it. So that's like the roadmap we're calling it. And then there's an audit because at the beginning of every account, we do like a month long, super, super high level audit. And that has happened as well, where I always warn the clients, like, look, the, month, the first month is going to be a little uncomfortable because I know that you're going to want to see like things being done. But believe me, after we do this audit, and we present it to you, you're going to be totally blown away and you're going to feel just really good about the direction because it lays a direction. You know, people see the audit and they say, oh, okay, I get it. Like, I know the plan. And so that audit within itself is also a front-end company. And so, God, like this whole theme has just come up so many goddamn times in this podcast because you totally flipped my life upside down. Like, I thought I knew what I was doing until you told me about this three-stage sort of media model. And now everything I do, I just can't help but see it through the lens. <laughs> can't escape, man. Stages. Yeah, I can't escape it. <clears throat> One thing I think this particular idea does a good job of showing too is how the different um, pieces of that equation can be replicated inside the same like company. So the simple way of saying that is you can have as many free front-end and back-end products as you want. And a lot of people, I think, get hung up 
um, like just having maybe one or one of each. But the reality, and this is like what Ryan Dice over at, uh, what is his thing, Digital Marketer, yeah, um, would tell you, is he thinks about it more like a solar system. So you have, say, a, there's like a core brand somewhere, and then the different uh, planets and moons that you build revolve around that core brand. And so you can have, say, an agency that's fueled by three or four free media companies that maybe all take a slightly different spin on the same topic. Mm. Um, you can focus on specific, like specific niches. I mean, I know there's a lot of subfields to behavioral health, or you could take, I don't know, different stances on it. Like maybe one is from the viewpoint of clinicians. One is from the viewpoint of totally. patients, something like that. There's all these different ways to do it. But they all fit into the same model. And basically, each time you build a successful property somewhere, you now have the launching point for the next one. And that's what he does. Yeah. So he thinks about it like colonizing a solar system where as soon as you, say, build your like your free newsletter, then you're going to launch maybe a, like a podcast off of that. That's like a, a, a moon that kind of surrounds the newsletter. And then both of those can be used to launch whatever the next planet is, which would be your front end or your back end or something like that. And it was funny when I interviewed him, um, he had kind of laid that system out for me. And then we were talking about other things and I, and I eventually asked something about his strategy for appearing on podcasts, because I noticed that he had done a couple interesting appearances recently. And he goes, oh, well, this is kind of an interesting example because I happen to own that podcast that you're talking about. And like, you, you never know because it's not directly associated with digital, like there's no connection, no clear connection between that sure. and digital marketer, but they had a guest fall through, we needed to fill a slot. And so we just decided to use it to like help pump digital marketer. So um, the it's definitely more common than I think a lot of people would suspect to have all these brands out there that are connected, but like not, not clearly connected. Yeah, I love that analogy because the other thing that you mentioned before, which I was also glad that you picked up on, is when you separate the two, when you have like a more of a media entity or even like a bunch of different media entities, you have a lot more freedom and flexibility to create the, the word that you used was like hard hitting, you know, so on the agency site itself it doesn't make a lot of sense to create content that isn't specifically like lead gen, because why, why bother? The, the point of the website is to get leads. But if you have maybe a podcast, if you have a blog, if you have a newsletter, your, um, let's call it the, like the, the different subjects that you can write about is just a lot more multi-purposeful and you have like a lot more freedom to just get your content out there and then expand your reach, grow your email list, which in, in the end, even though not all the traffic is gonna be super, super direct, like it would be directly on the, the agency site, in the end, I think it's still gonna create like a lot more opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this comes down to something else too, which is like the difference between editorial writing and copywriting. Yeah. Like when you think about why is it that you can have that freedom under a personal brand or a media brand, but not necessarily for an agency, the answer, well, there might be two answers. Maybe maybe one answer is that like theoretically you could have that freedom with an agency, but here's the problem. The problem is that on a company website <clears throat> for an agency, as an example, the bulk of your writing is gonna be copywriting. And the way that copywriting differs from editorial writing, and I know you know this, I'm just talking to anybody who is listening and might be new to this. The big difference is that copywriting is designed specifically for one thing that's to drive action, like a very specific action. Editorial writing can be designed to do a whole bunch of different things, convey ideas, build a connection, like, I don't know, piss people off maybe, but it's not necessarily designed totally. to drive action. And so by mixing editorial and copywriting, you're, you're walking a much finer line and risking uh just confusing your audience. Whereas if you have the editorial brand, which is all editorial writing, 
and then some very specific funnels through to the agency brand, which is all copy written, designed to move people through your funnel. I think um, it decreases the likelihood that people get confused and don't understand that you even offer and like agency work at all, you know, especially these days when like people are so much more used to interacting with content creators as individuals, you know, I like, I think about that. People don't really realize this because it happens sort of subtly, but a lot of people don't know the brand of their favorite creators anymore. They know that they know their favorite creators or they know their favorite athletes or, or whatever, but they're not like loyal to a brand or a team or anything like that, they like the person. And so there's freedom there because if you build the personal brand or the forward-facing brand, you can carry it with you. You can take your audience different places. Um, but I think a lot of brands get this wrong because they think, well, if we just invest in content, people will come to love our company. And it's like, no, they won't. I don't think they will. Like, unless you have such a good voice that your company comes alive as a person, it's not going to happen. Um, I have the perfect example for this because you really took the words right out of my mouth. I think, I, I think here's basically what we're saying. I think it is really hard for companies to become standalone media assets. I think people create media and I think companies do business. And the best example I saw with this is A16Z and their, quote, media wing, Future. So if you go to future.com, then this is basically like they were trying to create a magazine about investment, about crypto, about life sciences, about where funding was going. And in my view, I, I don't really know too much of the ins and outs of it, but it's been kind of a failure because there's nothing here to make me feel emotionally connected to the company. And I'm struggling to find the guy's name when you were talking. That's kind of why I was looking on my computer. Who is, who is the guy in A16Z that was like all about Clubhouse and he's got that really, really big popular blog. It's like a really simple email newsletter. He was one of the guys that brought Clubhouse to the forefront, was like really hot about it. Um, it's not Andrew Chen, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrew Chen. That's exactly who it is. It's exactly who it is. So like, I think of media and I think of a blog and I think about somebody that I want to follow. And I think of an Andrew Chen. I don't think of future.com. And I guess the yeah. same is true with like really, really hardcore media companies. Like if you think of CNN or Fox News, like what do you actually think of? You think of Crazy Tucker and you think of... <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, I had to put that in there. You think of crazy Tucker, and you think of like almost crazy Anderson Cooper. So, I think really the lesson here that I'm starting to realize is that media companies have faces, and companies have like merchants, basically, and that that is the disconnect as to why I think now after having this conversation, I'm leaning more and more towards yeah, like starting this this little media wing to feed attention to my front-end products and my back-end agency work. Awesome, man. Very well put, too. I think you're right. That is Thank you, because I was really fumbling through that. <laughs> no, it was that was good. You said something there. I'm going to have to rewind the audio to really grab it, but I was like, that belongs on a t-shirt. You said something like, um, you know, media companies have faces and it was something like media companies or brands or whatever have faces, creators have faces, but companies make money. And yeah. like that is, uh, there's an interesting, there is an interesting, uh, I don't know, truth in that. But I think I was just talking to somebody who was I talking to about this the other day. Um, this is something that a lot of brands are struggling with because they're trying to figure out how to capitalize on the creator economy and yeah. I, I really only think there's one way to do it right like well i guess there's two ways to do it because the music industry pulled it off but the music industry pulled it off by basically uh like screwing artists so that's yeah. one way you could set up all the contracts to screw the shit out of artists that's one way i don't know that that's going to work because 
and this is the weird thing that happens with creators, like there aren't the same uh, barriers to entry that the music industry capitalized on for a long time. Mm-hmm. So now and this has happened a lot of times to different brands that back streamers and podcasters and all kinds of stuff. You get to a certain point where the creator just realizes they could take their entire audience and walk and you can't really do anything to stop them. You could try and sue them or whatever, but it's going to do your brand more harm. It's worth than getting good. sued. What's that? Sometimes yeah, it's, it's worth, worth yeah, it's, yeah, it's worth getting sued for the creator. Plus, most brands aren't going to do it because it would it would undo everything they invested in in backing that creator in the first place, right? Which is like the the goodwill of the people. That old saying from Gladiator still rings true. It's like whoever controls the mob, man. Whoever controls the mob, what is it? Owns Rome. I don't know what yeah. it was, but yeah. it but that's the deal. And so most brands haven't really figured this out yet. And I think it's because they're still trying to win. And the reality is, I think I think there's only one real way to do creator marketing well. And it looks something like this. You have to structure it like an accelerator program. And you basically tell creators, we're going to back you for this long. We're going to push you to like to, to create, to learn, to grow in X, Y, and Z way. And then within, say, three years, we expect you to be out on your own. You'll have all your IP back. You are going to reap the benefits of this investment long term. And like we basically get you on the come up and then hopefully goodwill after that. And like you just keep uh, referring great up and coming creators through to us. I I really think that's the only way that brands can pull this off, because other than that, like I've seen the contracts that some brands try to push on creators. They suck. It's like I, I just I don't know why anybody would sign this if they were actually good enough to pull off what the brand wants them to do in terms of like getting attention. So there's not, not really many companies that I think, or I guess I would love to see a company that's doing a good job of this and um, I haven't yet. So I haven't either. Yeah. I think the only way it's an incentives problem really. And so if it were me, which it's not because I've never done influencer stuff or, or anything like that, but if it were me, the only way to be able to do it is to have some kind of piece in the upside. And the, the music analogy is interesting, but not quite aligned because the difference between creators and musicians is musicians go on tour. And so like that really is the, the missing link when it comes to YouTubers or social media influencers or whatever, is there's no reason for them to create a contract because the music monetizes obviously but in in a way the music has always been kind of marketing for the tour because so much of the money and so much of like the the i mean that's the back end product right so so much of that is from touring at least in terms of how musicians um like live their lives and, and make a living excuse me and so like uh so yeah really really interesting but but yeah how do you do it this is, I'm going to be thinking about this all week. How do you fuse the relationship between companies and creators? Yeah. Or do you not? Is it just a runaway train? And like, and now creators just basically get to do what they want, which I think is also very dangerous because it's going to take like a winner take, it's a, it's a winner take most game where most people are going to be starving and there's going to be, you know, the 20% that own 80% of all the resources. Um, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. What? I was just going to say like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I, I just realized what I, wait, what did you say? So a winner take all game. It'll be a winner take most game where if everybody is a creator, then almost all of the attention will go to a select few. And the vast majority of people are going to be kind of fighting for scraps. I think there's an element of truth to that. I also, th- I think the creator dream is like overhyped in some ways, but I would also say that it's, it's not a zero sum like situation either. Right. So the, I guess it's difficult to talk about creators because it's such a broad topic when really like any, any, any topic, any industry is going to have its creators. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'm sure there are like Pareto distributions. Those are, practically laws of physics it would be it would be wrong to say that you're wrong about that um but i also think that 
there there's still so much untapped potential in the space for people to get into niches you had me thinking about something a second ago what were you talking about you're saying how do you do it oh here's the other thing okay so you said maybe you just don't lean into the creator thing as a company and i think there's some power to that too like if i was to be critical of companies i would say the reason they need creators is because they don't really have a voice or they don't really have values of their own right like if you if you stand for something you don't necessarily need to piggyback on creator relationships instead you can build a product and this is like kind of philosophical so so there's some people who are just thinking like okay well that's a great philosophy but like i need results tomorrow so i'm gonna like i'm gonna hire a creator to go get the word out which is perfectly reasonable but here's what i'm getting at there are some companies right now that don't necessarily um i was gonna say they don't necessarily invest in creator relationships but that's not true I'm thinking specifically of Substack. I think Substack did a super smart thing by choosing to stand for free speech because they became the platform that creators now talk about for free. And I swear to God, Joe Rogan has given Substack like $10 million worth of free advertising in the last three months. Because, I mean, did you hear this? He he interviewed the founder once and they all they talked about was the whole free speech thing for uh, like a decent chunk of the show. And now anytime Joe Rogan talks to anybody who's controversial, it always comes up. He's like, well, that's why you're going to have a Substack, man. <laughs> and I'm like, that was the smartest thing that Substack did. I mean, they don't have to, they don't have to innovate anything for the next five years. Which founder just- was it? Uh, Hamish, Hamish McKenzie. He was on my podcast like two years ago before Substack blew up. I don't think it was, I don't think it was him. No. Was the um, other guy? Let me make sure I'm even, I think it was. Yeah, it's definitely oh, Substack. Substack yeah. Um, and that's cool. And, and I think you're totally right. I think you're totally right. And I think maybe for me, this is probably a good place to wrap it up on because. Best. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not him. That's not him. Because um, there's something else about the media landscape and the individual creator world that I think is left unsaid a lot of the times. And <clears throat> this is what it is. The majority of like multimillionaires that I know do not give a shit about Twitter. They do not care. It's a huge waste of time. If you actually want to build a business, and this is true for me as well, absolutely true for me. The vast majority of the revenue that comes in through Stasi is not through media. You know, I'm toying around with this idea because we're big enough now that we're starting to think like, okay, how do we expand? How do we expand? But if you want to build a business, and this is my Gary Vee thing, really. This is why I say I have a love-hate relationship with him because I think the stuff that he says is true, but I think it's just bad advice. If you want to build a business, the last thing you should do is be posting fucking pictures on Instagram. You should be meeting people and shaking hands and sitting at the table with people and talking to people and going to conferences and going to your local chamber of commerce and actually like sitting down and making business relationships because that really like real money is made in on conference tables. And I, I just think that that is going to be true always. And so, and so it's funny, I'm coming back full circle on this thing a little bit, basically saying that this was like a really great conversation and like, wow, how are companies and creators going to fuse and like, how are we going to leverage all of these creators with these millions and millions of eyeballs, you know, but like my actual advice is don't do any of that. Go meet people and shake hands and have conversations and then like just grow, just do it the way that it's supposed to be done. And you'll have so much more success. And I think you'll have like a lot less little tiny monsters running around in your brain saying i need to do this i need to do that i need to do this i need to do it this way this person's doing it that way like don't worry about any of that shit go shake hands go meet people go sell your products go sell your services go make happy customers and you're good i will balance that by saying like i'll take the i'll take the other side and say uh 
I think these tools are incredibly powerful. One person with a great personal audience will outperform handshaking and baby kissing. I don't know, man. Actually, I don't know how I feel about this. No way. Because so much, so much inbound. Yeah, you had to drop this like the last second where you're like the last five seconds of the podcast. You're like, hey, this is like a good uh, podcast. We should way, save this for next week, actually. We should really save yeah, this for next week. We can, we can definitely debate this. But I yeah. think um, there's one thing that I agree with in what you said, which is that if you make a truly great product, it, I think it makes up for a lot. And one of the things that I get kind of irritated with these days is like, it just doesn't feel like there are companies out there that stand for anything anymore. Everyone's just trying to say the right thing. You see it on Twitter. Everyone's just trying to write the tweets in the right way. But it's like, what do you actually stand for? What do you actually care about? You get that right. I think you can ignore a lot of the rest because people talk about you anyways, right? And like all a lot of the creator strategy and trying to build partnerships with influencers and stuff. It's a stand-in for not having a personality of your own, not having values of your own. Mm. So uh, it may not feel like that to a lot of people, but what I've, and, and, and maybe they're not coming from that place, but the reality is if you have those things, you have that voice, those values, uh, you can ignore it. You can ignore a lot of the rest yeah. because they, they like it, it rubs off on the company. Um, and I want to see more of that. I'm tired of companies that just say all the right shit and know all the right people. It's, it's boring boring that's the best word for it it's so boring so boring you know what man okay we gotta wrap this up i gotta go for a walk with my wife and my kids um let's talk about this again next week i'm gonna do a little bit of research of huge companies that have never spent a dime on social media any of it you know i think even apple didn't spend any money on social media for like ever i think it's only recently that they started doing it and I don't even know why they started probably Tim Cook um and then you take a look at companies that really really successfully leverage this like you know Gymshark I think would be a good example of that and I'll find I'll find the Berkshire the Berkshire Hathaways and you find the Gymsharks and maybe we like debate this next week that sounds interesting we'll give that yeah, a try that sound cool awesome cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening, people. We'll see you next week. Be sure to check out the copybloggerpod.com website. You can sign up for the email list and uh, check out, please DM me, pldm.me, <laughs> the super secret software <laughs> that runs our company that nobody ever <laughs> hears about because we never we never get to that point in the podcast. We'll get there. Um, we will yeah, get there. One yeah. of these days. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. All right, bro. I appreciate you. Later. See ya.